As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. Being willing to demand that which is just and right, it's not easy. But if you're going to be in leadership, as we were talking about with respect to Trump, or if you're an organizer or a, a nonprofit involved in bettering conditions, whether it's for black folks or anyone else, if you're unwilling to push, you're basically part of that same regime that at the end of the day screws us. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was very glad to have the chance to talk with James Rucker. James, the Stanford-educated progressive political entrepreneur with a long history in the space. He's currently a partner at Springboard and sits on the board of several important progressive organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center. James previously helped to found Color of Change with Van Jones following the move-on model, but aiming at a constituency of people of color and then ran it for six years. James also founded the Citizen Engagement Laboratory and worked for Move On in its early days. Before politics, he was a software entrepreneur. Our conversation covered his career, his current work, race and politics in the United States, and what to do with a president who's a bully, and many other topics. We talked longer than I usually do with guests, but it was a good conversation, well worth your listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with James Rucker of Springboard. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, James. Hello, Nathaniel. Do you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. So, well, you've got my name, James Rucker. I was born in San Francisco, uh, adopted basically from birth, and grew up in Seaside, California, which is just on the edge of Monterey, California. The, the son of two black parents, but grew up basically going to private schools where I was one of few black kids, often the only black kid in, in the class. My parents were both public school educators, but uh, they prioritized me going to private schools, which was politically interesting for them at the time. I guess it was probably in third grade. We got some personal computers brought to our science classroom. And once those computers kind of entered my life, it was a whole different, put me kind of on a very different trajectory. I loved the, the kind of ability to create out of nothing and you can create so many things in this virtual space and i just really took to it and basically throughout middle school and high school i 
was doing commercial software development and teaching classes on programming. And it, it was really kind of my, my jam. And when I went off to college, I went to Stanford, and they had this program called Symbolic Systems, which was new at the time. It was kind of this mashup of linguistics, philosophy of mind, philosophy of language, computer science, cognitive sciences was, was an element. It was where I kind of, not really knowing this was happening, developed a, a way of thinking about systems, systems of meaning, communication, and also learning systems, both machine learning and human learning, that kind of set the stage for how I've approached advocacy work and organizing work. After uh, working at a few software companies, I helped start some software companies and spent in the mid-90s, about five or so years, running a, a software startup. The company was called Imana. It kind of rose and fell in that first dot-com boom. The commercial application of the software product uh, was kind of adding a layer of smarts to document management systems and email systems. The idea was to look at all conversations that are online, uh, web searches, documents like Microsoft Word documents that people are creating, and in real time suss out who should be paired with whom, what team should be you know, in partnership with another team to more quickly solve problems. It was a very cool technology. The commercial effort failed, uh, but there was also an application for organizing and, and doing advocacy work. The dream was to be successful with the commercial venture and then give the same tool away to schools, nonprofits, those where folks, again, are working on, let's say, a particular problem in society and don't know that the, who else is working on it. After that, that last startup, I still did some consulting work, but it was at that point that I found it was really move on. Uh, it was two people. It was Wes Boyd uh, and Tom Matsey, really by random chance. There was a thing called Planet Works, which was an early conference. I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist anymore. It was basically people, a convening of people using technology to advance social justice, basically progressive goals. But that was kind of the, the point at which I went from being a software architect and CTO type person to working at and then starting several organizations in the advocacy space. Did you first go work for Wes at, at MoveOn? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, at this event that was at the, in the Presidio in San Francisco, Wes had given a presentation. And it, Wes was from the software industry as well. We had similar ways of, of, of thinking and analyzing, and that was clear from his presentation. And I was really wanting to just kind of get his take on why he thought what they were doing was successful the idea of kind of following the lead of people versus, you know, leading them per your agenda. And I was kind of geeking out on what MoveOn was doing. At what point in MoveOn's history was that? Yes. Yeah, well, this was 2003. So they're about five years in. Yeah, they're about five years in. Uh, they were significant and big, but like the staff, for instance, I think there were five people uh, at that time when I joined. I basically had this, you know, 15 minute conversation where Wes said, look, we need people like you who understand technology or have some level of understanding about how government and politics works, but not a beltway person, not an insider, but you know knows enough to be dangerous. And so he's like, we, we need folks like you. And, and I had planned to actually pivot 
from the software world into the social change world. It wasn't clear to me that that was the moment I was going to do that. Part of me thought I will, you know, start more startups, do more startups, and frankly, make a lot more money and then be in a position to seed whatever projects I wanted to, to see happen. You know, I talked with Wes again, and basically, I think a few weeks later, I was starting to work at Move On, where I worked for two years. What was your role there, and what did you learn? My first role, which was not the right role, was I was running the pack. But I was responsible for identifying House and Senate candidates that we should support, put in front of our members. That was the first job. I had a pretty clear vision of what I thought might be possible using the move on model around issues like criminal justice reform, which was not, at that time, move on was not, you know, even LGBT issues, death penalty, racial justice, those weren't top 10 progressive agenda items in terms of, you know, white American progressives that largely made up move on's base. But that was an area where I wanted to push and explore and did at the same time that I was, you know, running the pack. But then you also moved into their digital program. Is that right? You know, at that time, I wouldn't even say that we thought of digital program versus say pack. I mean, everything was inherently digital in terms of how we, you know, engage our members in the world. It all, I mean, we separated things legally, but it all kind of melded together. So I was doing the pack work, uh, but I was also doing what we would think of as digital organizing work as well in terms of like developing and executing campaigns. I don't know if it's just my interest or it's the way things worked out, but there's this intersection between technologists and software people and activism that is a really important thread in all kinds of organizations, which you're clearly a part of. What do you think it is about that nexus that that it's so important in the progressive ecosystem? You know, when I was in my 20s and I was in Silicon Valley around a lot of entrepreneurs, and at that time, folks like myself who saw themselves really as technologists ahead of being business people, we were really psyched about we could imagine something and we could sketch it out, iterate it, figure out how to create something according to a vision. And you see this still now, I'd say in the Valley to a degree, where it often comes with a certain kind of arrogance, but we could make this thing, whatever this thing is, if we can conceive of it, and then we can design and implement and get the, the, the bugs out, if you will, we can create things far beyond that which is familiar, that which is already in play. So there's this kind of, I think, visioning and then analysis and design and execution that's like a cycle that software folks come to adopt and it applies beyond, right? And so, and this is why I think, you know, we have folks who know nothing about <laughs> uh, politics and very little or nothing about how to engage people, how to meet people where they are and so on. But they're technologists and they believe, oh, we've got this broken political problem or this disconnect between like reality and what people believe. We can design and engineer our way out of that. And, and there's this belief other folks can't. Now, I would say that's not necessarily the case, but that attitude translates, I think, very well into not just the kind of social change political space, but 
nonprofits that have to do with, you know, kind of serving society. It's amazing. I mean, it's almost like, it feels almost like an advantage having that way of kind of systems thinking, and then you apply it to problems in society. There's a freshness. You, you feel like you got a blank slate, even though that's often not the case. It's the whole world of, I don't know, software eating the world and lean startup principles and entrepreneurship and how do you scale that applies to the world of trying to change people's minds or or pull them together to make change in society. That's exactly right. Everything you just said, right? You're basically engineering and you're engineering towards something that's at a level of scale. If you're doing engineering, certainly software engineering, building online services, that mentality is what folks like a Wes or you know me and some and you know others bring to the space and i had a a a bad attitude i'd say and i still have a little bit of a bad attitude but there was an arrogance i had like wait why is this stuff broken like why are we talking to people in the way at least the way i'm being talked to like i want to love these these democrats but wow i'm i'm not impressed and and that was true for me, with a lot of the ecosystem and some of it unfair, but what enables a given nonprofit to be successful over time, let's say in terms of fundraising, where it's about largely relationships, you can have great relationships, do mediocre work, and have a very long career. And that is very hard to pull off, one, in the kind of for-profit world. Either you're selling products and services that people want and pay for if they're not paying for them. If the product isn't right, the company won't exist and people will go work elsewhere. You don't have that kind of dynamic built into the way that the kind of whole nonprofit sector is set up. I basically had a lot of critique. And like I said, some of it unfair, a fair amount of it actually fair. At Move On, we would experiment, attempt things that theoretically made sense and it's like, hey, can we, can we build something that would achieve this? Let's try it. You know, a lot of things don't work. Some things work but don't scale. And some things work and then they do scale. But that kind of risk-taking, being willing to fail, and to rethink that which isn't, isn't working, you know, is, is a real asset uh, when you come to social change work. So did the previous entrepreneurship that you had experienced help you at MoveOn? And did you learn more about it, you know, during your time there? What I learned in the context of Move On, I would say was, you know, I got much more familiar with who responds to what, what will spur a level of uh, engagement and what won't. The principles around, they're almost like they start up kind of principles or some engineering principles that I came with. And in many ways, Move On felt like very small startup, bent on innovation, figuring out what works, tossing what doesn't. All of that was part of the culture I came from. It was a culture that Wes you know, had come from. And, and this, I think, is really important, especially if we look at political leadership. There, there was no interest in justifying our existence, you know, developing, let's say, products or services, or being around because it was important to be around and say we were doing something. In fact, you know, one of the things that Wes would say, and I still say often as a, as a board member of a few like Move On and Color of Change and some other organizations, 
I'm intensely disinterested in existing for the sake of existence and quite fine to be put out of business by someone else doing a better job because fundamentally the goal was is now, I'd say for me, and was then about creating certain outcomes. The outcomes far outweighed being seen as the leader of such and such organization. And I would say, you know, I came from a degree of privilege, not so much financial, I'd say, but, uh, you know, to a degree, but I, I didn't need or care about having the job. And that was the case, you know, when I started at Move On and when I was running Color of Change. I mean, now I've been away from the software industry for so long. It's not like I could go get a, you know, a great paying job. But I, I really wasn't there for the job. I was there because I thought I can help make a certain kind of change happen. When I look at, let's say, you know, Democratic Party leadership or, you know, most, you know, Democratic electeds, I'd say the behavior demonstrates this. A lot of folks are quite fine to occupy a seat, say the right things and, you know, have a quote unquote good, good reputation. But, but in terms of getting the, the work of change done, they're failing. In my estimation, a lot of folks, the, their actual priority, demonstrated priority is being in their position, occupying a certain space versus delivering certain results. Do you think that's a an attitude generally characteristic of founders and entrepreneurs rather than executive directors and COOs or CEOs or something? There may be some of that. You have to be motivated by, I think, something pretty big and beyond like your position or your salary to do what it takes to create for-profit or non-profit. So yeah, I think there's something about entrepreneurs and kind of you know founders but uh, what, what I would say is I think, at least in the for-profit space, those who are successful, if they're complacent and they're not aligning themselves and th their teams with a, a vision that goes far beyond the status quo, there'll be someone else who is, they'll win or they'll have a significant advantage over you. So I, I think in the for-profit space, because of competitive issues, that you have at least successful CEOs who are uh, a, a bit more willing to take risk and push the envelope in the nonprofit space, the, the incentives are, are, are very different. Taking risks that expose weakness often doesn't help you. Uh, what does help you is being seen as the premier organization in a given space. And you, you can, as long as you fight to keep that title, you'll raise money, often raise more money. If you tell a good story, it, you know, it's different than actually producing certain results. What have you been part of founding as far as organizations post move on? One thing I failed to mention, and it's, it's top of mind a little because I was in Seaside yesterday. My mom, who's 87, was getting an award. In addition to being a, a public school educator, she was an activist, especially around issues of race and edu you know, opportunity around education. This, this idea that when things aren't right in your community and you're in a position to help fix them, you do that. And growing up with a degree of privilege, being in schools where there was a ton of privilege. And as an adoptee, I think I always you know, thought about, wow, I could be here. I could be in very different circumstances. I kind of credit my mother 
with instilling this idea that you take care of your family, but you take care of the community as well. Anyway, that wasn't to your last point. Well, it does seem relevant yes. to your motivation. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. At Move On, what was great is we ran some campaigns that were concerning racial justice. We ran some tests around death penalty. But again, especially at the time, Move On was very, very white um, in terms of the membership, pretty well-educated, fairly affluent. Move On did not, for instance, it wasn't, it didn't make sense. And especially with kind of the the model of Move On, where we're essentially trying to bring opportunities for folks to engage that speak to where they are. You know, at that time, a cop killing a black kid, that news was, was received very differently, I'd say, by white Americans than is the case today. And so addressing issues like, let's say, police brutality, uh, that wasn't something that uh, was straightforward to do from the perch of move on. I had talked with Wes and actually a lot with Joan. And at one point, there was a conversation I remember having with Van and some other folks about taking the, the move on model and putting it to work for other populations. In any case, when Katrina happened, I called Van and said, hey, we, <laughs> you know, we've, we've walked around this a bit. It's an opportunity to create essentially a black version of move on. And we're talking about Van Jones here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a different time in Van's career. So Katrina seemed like the moment to introduce kind of a platform for activism, you know, catering to, to black folks and folks who weren't black, but saw that we have a pretty big uh, racial justice problem in, in, the, in the country. And so I started Color of Change with Van. I had probably, I don't know, a hundred relevant people to send the email to, kind of introducing the thing and asking them to sign a petition around Katrina. Van, I think, had like a list of 1,500 or you know, maybe 2,000 people who, he was running the Ella Baker Center in Oakland at the time, and he sent it out to that list, and it happened to really speak to people. And my plan was to, to run it, run Color of Change, and then find new leadership like nine to 12 months down the road. And my wife had agreed, we'll fund it, I'd run it, and then thought I'd find some younger black entrepreneurial type to take it and run with it. Move On was supportive, and uh, other folks, like I said, what I didn't think about, kind of should have been obvious, is finding someone who's entrepreneurial, who doesn't want to get paid a whole lot of money to play that role was a pretty tough proposition. And I, when I was in college, undergrad, I mean, you know, among black students, not exclusively black students, but no one was doing art history. <laughs> you know, it was like pre-med, pre-law or engineering, things that made money. <laughs> and so... Basically, what I needed to do to hand the baton over was convince someone who come out of college and make six figures pretty quickly, convince them to go to the, you know where there's no clear career trajectory, no real money. Anyway, that, that, there's another conversation about the ways in which financial privilege speaks to who gets to do what in the social justice space. But in any case, I ended up running it for, I guess, six years. I uh, was so happy to have... Uh, you know, found Rashad, who took it over and has been running it since. While I got you on Color of Change, can you just say a little bit about what the vision was there and how well you hit it and what you think of that organization and so on? I looked at the state of black political organizations and social justice organizations. While they're, you know, some well-funded organizations, the way in which issues that confront black America with devastating consequences 
the way they were just not a political priority, despite having black people in Congress, despite having you know the NAACP. I thought we need something new, and 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 this may not be the end all be all, but this is an intervention, you know, kind of a version of what Move On was for not just black communities, but for Latino communities, for LGBT folks. A center for activism uh, with an online... Well, that comes later. Yeah. So I co-founded Citizen Engagement Lab, which was basically to be an incubator for a set of online communities. One of the campaigns we ran was pretty neat. There was a film called American Blackout that had been made by Ian Anaba. And it basically told the story of uh, kind of modern day voter suppression. Uh, and it was done by following Cynthia McKinney, who was a, a member of Congress from Georgia. The way she was knocked out of office in large part uh, was due to voter suppression. Anyway, it chronicled kind of modern day voter suppression. And we purchased 10,000 copies of the film and distributed it to members if they'd agree to host a watch party and so on. In the course of working with Ian uh, to get that film out, we talked about taking what the model for Move On, taking what we'd build at Color of Change and making it so that you know it was relatively easy, let's say, for a Latino version of the same thing to be created. Because you can have shared infrastructure, everything from you know design, PR, web servers, and, and all of that. So the idea was, you know, get the the right entrepreneur, plug them into infrastructure and create these communities with small teams that kind of had the same foundation. And so that I, I you know, co-founded and, and co-ran Citizen Engagement Lab, which, you know, helped. Some efforts were created from scratch. Some entrepreneurs were struggling to kind of get going or, or it was daunting and, and kind of a time waste to fundraise and build all this infrastructure that actually already existed. And so we helped get several organizations, you know, several that are still in play, launched as an incubator. What are those? Presente was one. Ultraviolet was, was one where we helped. One that we didn't, and I, and I was not happy because I thought she was up to great stuff. Uh, some of us, so we didn't, you know, but Taryn, uh, who started Some of Us, that was, you know, actually a, a project we looked at, and she's obviously created something amazing. Those are ones that come to mind. There, there are others. That sounds like a pretty fun and rewarding thing to be doing. I recently talked to someone from Pulso who came out of a different lab that also spawned Push Black. And I wonder if you're aware of them and where they fit in to the ecosystem. Well, you say Pulso. That's a Latinx group, but came out of the same thing as Push Black. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't know about Pulso, but I know Peter Murray. Um, He's the fellow in charge of the lab. It sounds pretty similar. They do a lot of Facebook Messenger stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's Cell was earlier on. And, and what I think is probably true to say is that digital organizing looked different then than now. And so uh, and with my recollection of, you know, I had many conversations with Peter. I would say it had a, a kind of broader lens on starting things that would create change, not so much in the heart of, okay, let's create a bunch of communities that use this common infrastructure. But yes, I mean, I would say they're both incubators and both interested in social change uh, in a sustained way and at a certain level of scale. Yeah, they're similar, not exactly the same, but similar. Yeah, for sure. 
I'm curious always about that change in sort of leadership that it sounds like you were looking for from the get-go, which is kind of rare, but with color of change, moving it to somebody else, Rashad, who picks up the baton. How was that for you? Yeah. Coming from the software startup world, I understood intellectually, at least founder syndrome. I saw it play out (laughs) many times. I, I would say one thing I've been clear on is I'm a startup person. I mean, I can be scrappy, you know, do everything from figure out a message, do a decent job of design and whatever grunt work and with a small team, make something happen and get, you know, the software company I ran, I think we were maybe at 30 people. And, and if, if we were any bigger than that, I couldn't have managed it well. I was aware that, oh, for color of change to evolve, I want new leadership, um, which doesn't mean it's, it's easy. I mean, if, if you talk to Rashad, you know, he's going to tell you the same thing. It's, you know, you're turning something over and there's certain things that I knew how to do really well. What was great is there were things that I knew I couldn't do at all and that Rashad was already killing in the work that he was doing with GLAD. What was great about Rashad coming on is he had uh, a set of experiences, you know, a toolbox that I knew nothing of, right? Or I hadn't been steeped in it. I mean, I have children and the, the idea of letting them go be adults and doing adulting the way they see fit. <laughs> they're going to do what they're going to do. I think, you know, you, there's definitely that, but I'm so grateful because what Rashad's been able to do, you know, much bigger team. How big was it when you had that oh, transition? Uh, like half a dozen people. And, and now it's, I think like 80 people or something like that. Do you like what it's become? I do. There's a level of change that I think is needed. And I think it's obvious given where we are at this moment, given a bunch of things. Who's in the White House, how the media talks about everything. There's a lot of work to do. And like, I want to solve the problem at the root level and throughout. So it's a tall order for those of us who want to see a certain kind of change happen, to not be complacent, to figure out what's the thing that we're missing that would give us the ability to move non-incrementally and let's, let's go there. And I think it's difficult when you have an organization the size of what Rashad is running now to be lean and experimental constantly when there, there's work that you're doing that's clearly important, it's valued, you get accolades for it. But to celebrate the good work you're doing, but then to also remain at the fighting edge. And I actually think Rashad's doing a great job of it. What we're up against is, is, is deep. And uh, you, know, you, you kind of, I think, constantly have to be experimenting and innovating in order to have a chance at meeting the challenge. I mean, if you had to point to the most significant impact that that organization has had, what would you think it is? Some of it's less visible. I mean, here's what I'd say, and, and this is speaking to the state of color of change now. There are politicians and they're just actors who think twice about doing something horrible <laughs> because of color of change. That actually is, 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 is pretty valuable. Something that's very new and uh, I'm excited about is I ran campaigns, Rashad has run campaigns that have created a, a level of accountability, let's say for corporate players. Um, Color of Change is now entering into the space of like shareholder activism, which is a whole other set of targets and a you know, different set of playbooks that can be applied. The ALEC work, you know, which, which was led by Rashad, most everyday people have no idea what ALEC is. The way in which Rashad went after companies contributing to ALEC and connected you know, problems like gun violence uh, in black communities, you know, the standard ground law, connected these to ALEC 
and at least for a time kind of undid Alec, it changes what people think is possible. So there's a certain kind of way in which I think color change didn't come and go. There are things that, you know, we did well, let's say early, that have been done again and even better later, and it's stuck around. And so I think it's changed the kind of political culture to a degree, and hopefully it'll do more. I kind of want to ask you generally about race in America right now, but also about the organizations that are working to improve things. What are your general thoughts about the time we're in right now? I mean, what's amazing, and it gives me a degree of hope, there was a time when black people, we understood the risks. Anytime you see flashing lights in your rearview mirror, especially as a black male, if you have parents who know what they're doing, you get taught about that situation. For a long time, I remember white folks I knew kind of thinking, you know, black folks are kind of overdoing it with this idea of police being predatory, or it was a reality for black Americans. If you're a white person with black friends, you've heard that perhaps, but it's not echoed anywhere in the media. But things like Black Lives Matter, you know, a set of things have happened that make it such that there's, you know, white folks who go like, oh, of course, or less dismissive. Look, Coates puts out a piece about reparations and, you know, John Conyers for decades tried to introduce a bill which never was, was brought forward for a vote just to ask the question, should we look at the idea of reparations, not advancing anything, but just calling the question and couldn't get a vote on it. And now you have presidential candidates talking about it. So, you know, I don't want to say that the conversation around race in this country hasn't evolved because I think in certain ways it has. At the same time, we're operating on a foundation of, of lies. And until we get honest and give a proper accounting, a proper telling of how we got where we are, why folks who look like this person live over here and have certain life outcomes versus folks over here. Until we're honest about that, and this is not just about race, it's about economics as well, the the idea that, oh, if you just work hard, and you know, yeah, for a given individual, you work hard and you're smart, maybe anything is possible, but we have systems in play that, that, that rig it. Unless you address that starting point, we're, on the one hand, working incrementally on the margins and never kind of cracking the actual problematic code, or we're misguided. We take on solutions that actually aren't solutions because we haven't probably understood the problem and been honest about it. I'm curious what you think that lie is. I mean, I know that we, you know, we had a big confrontation about race in the mid-60s, in the decade or so before that culminating in the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and then sort of a slow backward movement in the legal world over the years following. It seems like a lot of progress generally in the social sphere, in entertainment, and then a Trump campaign. What do you think is the big lie that you know and a lot of people know, but too many people don't? When you look at let's say, black poverty. You have certain laws, let's say, that attempt to or or in theory would address certain kind of uh, systems level issues. But the idea that black people aren't smart or that black people are lazy or there are problems, let's say, within black culture that are responsible for the state of black America. There's still this kind of charity, 
it's like we got to fix black people. There's still a ton of prejudice. There's still a ton, yeah, a ton of prejudice. And you're able, right? Again, given, and I'll try to answer the question, what is the lie? If your starting point is a bunch of kind of r- racist history <laughs> and you don't look at the fact that, oh, for you know, centuries, white folks could accumulate capital, you know, which basically would grow over time. It's investable, it grows, and it's passed down. And you have folks who are doing basically the work to create that capital and getting none of it and can't save it, can't invest it, can't build it over generations. But you presume there's more or less a level playing field. What results should not be surprising. But if your, your idea is that, oh, well, that was a long time ago, and yeah, we still got, you know, there's still racism, blah, blah, blah. But you don't look at the fact that these folks, because of their relationship to the systems in play, because of the resources they have, even forget, put, put to the side, like they like, say prejudice and so on, it results in certain very clear outcomes. Of course, you're going to have people who are broke, who are black, and the stigma of race, right? Keeping those folks in certain places, systemically denying resources to them and giving them to the folks that already have the resources, of course, you're going to end up with certain, you know, kind of crazy disparities and problems. And black people don't need help. You know, we still have a lot of folks where it's like uh, the mentality is, well, we want to help the underprivileged inner city, low income black kid. Well, actually, the biggest help would be to understand why this individual person and these people in this community are not only in that situation, but how you are in a very different situation because of what came a decade, you know, five decades, a century before. That foundation of lies that lead reasonable, otherwise reasonable people to go like, well, because there's not in the, you know, kind of on the front burner, oh, here's like the analysis of what's happened and let's policy make and like culturally deal with that reality. The best you can do is say, well, let's just go help these people in a very kind of palliative in the moment, disregarding the root causes. And it reinforces that idea, actually. Well, they need help because something's wrong with them. Let's give them an advantage. Well, actually, it's about a huge systemic disadvantage that's actively being perpetuated because we don't actually confront what's underneath. It's a lot to confront, I think. Uh, Yeah. I think the whole alt-right, new versions of the KKK, let's say, kind of surfacing, becomes the face of, for a lot of folks, the kind of, oh, this is white supremacy. That's what this looks like. When actually, I think most progressives will fall into that more palliative mode that let's give folks equal opportunity, but again, around the edges to deal with white supremacy as like kind of just what's in the water. I think this is important to give white folks kind of a pathway to confront the reality without being afraid that their identity is going to fall apart, or they're now a bad person because they're receiving a certain privilege and like that they're actually connected to the problem, right? That they're fundamentally an actor. But to take that in, I think is very difficult. People need the safety of feeling like their world's not going to fall apart. To do the re-education, I think, requires giving people those pathways. I don't think there's any question that we all swim in a water that's racist and sexist, by the way, inevitably in this country. Some people make the point that noting how omnipresent that is and calling it out all the time removes some power from these labels. And I wonder how you feel about that. 
that criticism, maybe. Say, say that again. I want to make sure I, I, I... So, like, you know, in the debate the other night, you heard Trump labeled a racist, right? And then people might label any supporter of Trump a racist for supporting him. Or the term racist gets used very frequently by the people who are extremely aware of how how ubiquitous it is, right? It's, it is the water we swim in. Do you think that there's something about how common and how threaded it is into every interaction we have with people that makes it almost too diffuse to use? I'm wandering into area that I'm not really qualified, and I understand it is so hard because, you know, this is the original sin of this country, and we haven't overcome it and it's still driving our politics and it's still driving so much about the course of career for every person in this country, white or black or, or other. It is something that you've created an organization to try to address. How do we do this and bring everybody along? Because right now we have a guy who is actively separating us on this dimension. Yeah. I dig the question. I'm, I'm glad you're going there. You know, it's easy to call Trump a racist. He is a racist. We, we knew he was a racist, you know, before he was a candidate. His dad was a racist. He dad grew up was, a racist. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, the Central Park Five, he's like, even when they're, you know, exonerated, he's like, well, you know, they're still bad people. I mean, he's clearly a racist. And so- I, I mean, he says he's not a racist, but everything he does makes it obvious that he is. Yeah. He's not the only in the first, right? <laughs> Most of the folks, you know, far right, who are clearly will say, "I'm not a racist. I'm just, you know, whatever." One problem here is that it's too simple. That usage of the idea of racism or, or racist is, is is too simple, and I think it actually obscures the deeper in the water racism. There's the racism of Trump, where he's saying, you know, these people are racist or these are bad, all that shithole countries. Then there's the racism of low expectations for black kids in school, or I would say actually the kind of palliative approach, basically believing these folks, whether it's black folks, brown folks, uh, you know. You think that's almost more dangerous. Yeah, because there's, yeah. It, it obscures. It's easy to point to something blatant and say this is bad, but it's hard to label everything that's happening all day long. Yeah. And it's daunting. I mean, I think the thing is, it, it, what's kind of crazy is it's not hard to figure out. If, if you just look at wealth accumulation over generations, that being provided for certain folks, completely denied for, for other folks, if you just ran the computer model, <laughs> you would see disparities and you would see what happens when those folks feel like failures, when they have children. Like, so to not go there and to accept the status quo as it's kind of presented with, let's say, you know, these communities having issues or these people needing help, that, that's, that's white supremacy right there. That's actually, it's part of the racism that's in play. And I think it, it, it's, it's great if you're someone who's white and you're able to say, well, those are the racists over there. That's not me. It gives you a certain kind of safety still built, you know, kind of on a false premise. So, and that's perpetuated. And, and just to be real, like you'll have let's say, white folks who uh, have means in their funders who are quite happy to see Republicans, you know, painted in a, in a, in a, as racist, let's say, or, you know, some of them, whatever you want to say, but are not eager 
to look at how their philanthropy unfolds. No one wants to be called a racist. And no, yeah, white people are so afraid of being called a racist. It's like the worst thing. And, and that's part of the problem, right? Is that I think, well, of course, most white people are racist. And, and a lot of black folk have views, and I don't mean like anti-white racist, but anti-black racist views because they've been educated in the same system. They watch the same media. <laughs> they live in the same country. That's dangerous. I remember when I was in college and there was uh, a member of the staff, wasn't faculty, in the administration who got caught filming women who were students. When this guy was caught, every guy I know, it was very interesting. They were like, oh my God, how could he possibly think of women in this kind of objectified way and act in this? And I remember thinking, oh my God, like, yeah, that, that's really horrible what he did. But I understand the ways in which I and, and almost every other guy I know, in their mind, if not in some level of action, objectify women. But th this person becoming the like representative of this horrible th you know, thing got us off the hook. And I was like, come on, guys, be real. Don't, don't <laughs> lie in front of these women like we don't think like this guy. You know what I mean? But th so that, that doesn't help. That doesn't help. We're all, we're all on anybody. the spectrum of racism. Exactly. The president, in addition to not being great on race, to put it mildly, is a bully. Do you have thoughts about how you tackle a guy like that, doing the damage that he's doing? When you have a bully who's like running the schoolyard and you're happy to say, oh, you know, this, this is a bad guy, but actually not do anything that trips him up that protects someone he's about to, to bully like and not you know through a megaphone from across the schoolyard but actually up in the guy's face there's just being strategic and there's actually you know confronting a bully one is you don't say well we disagree over here but we're going to kind of respect kind of the kind of political you know theater of playing nice like you've got someone who's a sexual predator who's a racist who's a liar, and who you say is unfit for office, yet you actually are afraid of using tools at your disposal, whether they're impeachment, whether they're, no, we're not going to actually work with the administration, more or less on anything. Like, we never call, you know, and by we, I mean Democratic leadership, never really, maybe never is a little strong because there's some corner cases, but calls his bluff, especially in a way that, doesn't enable him to, to to pivot the next day, right? And so you don't think that you should work with him on on the occasional, like take uh, your former co-founder, Van. I mean, he worked recently with Trump on that First Step Act on incarceration and I'm certain accomplished something, but also uh, may have helped Trump in the African-American community in a way that's not helpful. What's your take on that? I love Van. I think Van's brilliant. Um, and I also don't, you know, hold the keys to truth on all this stuff. So this is one where I think we see it differently. If you're a bully in the play yard and you were taking the dodgeball and hitting everybody upside the head, I'm not going to go play tennis on, the, I'm just, maybe this is a bad metaphor, you know, <laughs> tennis over here on this other part of the yard. When you're not hitting somebody, am I going to play, you know, I'm going to shoot hoops with you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so First Step Act is a good legislation. I'd say probably so in some way, like outside of everything else. The problem is Newt Gingrich is someone 
who has, you know, advanced work with Newt. And I get it. I mean, I've, I've gotten, uh, I think, a pretty good breakdown of, like, ways in which there's kind of movement in the psychology and, like, the, the possibilities for policy as some of this stuff plays out. And I, so I don't want to diminish that. The normalization of Trump that happens, the idea, and Trump and, and Gingrich, and I know these folks get this because it's just, they, they've done it repeatedly and it works. They get the space and they get a little bit of benefit of the doubt. They're seen not as horrible racists who are helping on horribly racist policy. It becomes a little nuanced, a little muddied. So to me, that kind of in a moment gain there may be some actual, let's say, gain there, but strategically, one month later, one year later, it becomes much harder to define these folks for who they really are. You know he's going to run for president and wave that, you know, and maybe that'll get him a couple more votes per precinct in Wisconsin and win the election. I kind of honor what Van's doing there and also worry like crazy about the consequences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is, again, you know, when I look at Democratic leadership, I, I brought up Conyers' reparations. I remember when we worked on uh, trying to even out the disparity in sentencing around crack versus powder cocaine. And, you know, white progressive Democrats, and then you'll have black, you know, in, in office who will kind of fall in line. It's like, well, yeah, instead of it being 100%, let's say, level of injustice, let's take it down to 60%. When you can understand the injustice, but you're unwilling to, again, kind of be truthful, go to the root and act from there. So when you have Trump going after, uh, you know, so-called squad or you have or when you declare, as I believe Nancy Pelosi has done several times, you know, he's unfit. He's, he's all these things. But then you don't act accordingly. And when it's let's say with impeachment. People who are being screwed right now, let's look at folks who are coming here seeking asylum. His racist immigration moves here deliver huge, huge consequences for actual people. And when you go, eh, you know, you're, t my belief, testing political wins, and, you know, and you're saying, oh, he's this deep problem. And I, I don't believe Nancy Pelosi holds any of these, you know, is, is not a racist uh, in, in, in the way that Trump's a racist. But I think it's quite fine to make political calculations that one, I think it's another thing. I actually think they're wrong, the calculation, but in any case, you're allowing a certain activity to unfold and basically become normalized because while you say one thing about it, um, you work with the guy in other ways, you validate the guy. It's not like an overt validation, but it's an effectively, you know, validation because you're willing to have business as usual unfold while these horrors are happening. So you've been sort of saying that Trump is bad enough that Pelosi shouldn't be really working with him or should be working with him in an entirely different way than she has so far. What would you do if you were the Speaker of the House with respect to Trump? Yeah, wow. Um, great question. Haven't envisioned myself in Pelosi's shoes exactly. Big shoes. Yeah, big, big <laughs> shoes. The posture that I would take, and this is, I think, a key difference, there's so much, obviously, daily that comes from uh, Trump and, and the Trump administration, Pelosi's approach has been to be outraged, ostensibly outraged in moments that then goes away. Trump has enabled 
right, by, by many folks. Obviously, the GOP enables him. But when Democratic leadership plays ball and, on the one hand, criticizes but then effectively legitimizes Trump as president, well, you do exactly that. He, he becomes seen as legitimate on some level. And so what that means is all kinds of horrible policy that comes you know, down the pike, a lot of it not the front page you know, news story, that continues. But how on earth can she stop it if the Senate is not allowing her to have the whole Congress together in opposition, or you if you were in the role as we were hypothesizing? Yep. So you have to sign budgets. You can't hold the whole nation hostage on every front, can you? I mean, we're already being held hostage by Trump. That's part of the method and play on his part. And that is, you know, I, I dare you, I challenge you to actually refuse, like, you know, it's like a game of chicken. I, I challenge you to throw down against me in ways that will bring consequences. That's That's like the threat that he's been hanging over Democrats' head from the beginning. It is risky business for sure to bring things to a, a halt. But the question is, who, who gives in in the game of chicken? And for the most part, uh, Pelosi and Dem leadership give in. Yes, a refusal to do the nation's business as usual. The markets you know, won't like it. You subject yourself to certain kind of attack. At the same time, the kind of continual backing down or playing ball while the president rams through you know, craziness that delivers consequences. It's just kind of you know, like a frog you know, being boiled over time. Uh, you don't end up with acute pain, <laughs> but you end up getting killed. I wanted to see this from the beginning of his presidency. To me, the idea that folks, Democrats, showed up to the State of the Union, I think, again, is, is a certain kind of failing. You're actually legitimizing the president in his role, um, and he uses that legitimacy to, to wreak havoc. And it's on a continual basis. It's definitely a tricky situation because he is the president. Absolutely. Right? The electoral college put him in office. The voters that picked that electoral college very unfortunately and barely put him in office. You're a little bit stuck with him unless you can impeach him and you can't impeach him because you don't have the Senate. Yeah. No, or you can't convict you him. You can't successfully. You can't, right. Yeah. You, can't, you can't successfully. You could impeach him. In, in the, you could vote for impeachment in the House, right. but you're, you're never going to convict him unless something wildly changes in the political dynamics. No, absolutely. So, but part of it is, and you know, it's not just Trump and it's not just the Democratic leadership uh, or Democratic electeds. It's the, the audience of the country. It's uh, members of the GOP who thus far, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting how you had uh, Republicans coming out before he was elected and even, you know, I think probably shortly after who were on the spectrum of he's unfit. Can you be saying that and be at all consistent in then dealing with him while saying he's unfit? Yes, but and, and, yeah. but but you know, in particular, you have Republicans who said that. You have, I believe, Mitch McConnell was was pretty pretty harsh on Trump. And as things have unfolded over time, if you're a, a, an elected Republican um, or you're someone who's in the administration. You you have this choice. Do I turn against him and face consequences or do I uh, you know, align myself with him? What Democrats, I believe, have done is helped legitimize him to the point and not successfully push back, essentially 
enabling him to be strong and his opposition to be relatively weak, except in, in rhetoric, which side are you going to choose? It's, it's, a, it's a risky route. It can be a career-ending moment for you to oppose the president. The condition for that has been set by a failure um, to introduce real consequences for being aligned with the president, for making the president actually toxic. Yes, you, you have a job to do. I think you can vote for bills. You can still perform on a certain level. 99% of the time, you could vote for things, and yeah, people can see the votes, but acting as if we've got a, a liar, a predator, someone who is unfit for office, if you're not acting like that on a daily basis and actually fighting him and bringing certain things to a halt or not letting business as usual unfold, it's risky, and there's some consequences, but what you do is you create a set of circumstances where people don't see it's that it's it's to their advantage to align themselves with him to become apologists for him instead of the alternative being to be in opposition i mean it's, it's just not costly enough for gop members to oppose him at this point and so you have you know you look at let's say you know kavanaugh you've got folks lining up in support of the president when anybody with a brain and a conscience could see how there's a problem. And so to me, it's do you allow the slow destruction of our culture, our country? Do you allow your personal integrity basically to suffer? Or do you act as if, oh, we've got a lying, predator, irresponsible, not trustworthy person in office? And do you, as a leader, demonstrate that you fully recognize that? Or do you normalize it? Sadly, I think it plays right into what I perceive as you know the Trump playbook, which is you you go hard, you double down, and you dare those who oppose you to actually confront you. And repeatedly, he's been winning on that. So I, I translate that to much more confrontation is what you'd like to see. And you think politically that would be advantageous. I want to go back to... Uh, something you said earlier, which sort of implied that progressive funders of organizations of run by people of color or interested in people of color are, because they're swimming in this racist stew that is our society, they are making mistakes. But you didn't sort of make concrete what you meant there. And I'm just curious, like, what would your advice be to these funders to do differently what they do? I guess I would start by saying we have failed to fully own what has happened in this country uh, with respect to race and class. And as a result, there's this move towards kind of palliative measures versus at the root level, you know, serious transformations. For instance, if what you're doing as a funder Let's say it's the you know, educational opportunity, um, or it's you know social services uh, for black folks in urban areas where there's poverty. This idea of like kind of giving a hand up, uh, you know, helping folks out. That posture, I would say, is 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 steeped in kind of a, a racist denial of why the circumstances are the way they are in the first place. It's it's not a hand up. It's like kind of correcting history. Uh, you know, unless you believe that. Black people are intellectually inferior, or you believe that black folks are genetically predisposed to be criminal, 
undereducated, you know, and what have you. But if you actually believe that black folks in particular, let's say, are genetically just as capable as anyone else in, in, in community, just as capable as any other community, what you then need to look at is, well, why are things the way they are? And it's not hard. Just looking at, say, you know, the accumulation of, of wealth over time. You have a whole set of society that benefited from free labor and was able to take that, the, you know, the fruits of that labor, the value, invest it, pass it down generation to generation. And you have, on the other hand, folks who provided free labor, had nothing to accumulate, couldn't invest, can't pass it on. If you look hundreds of years later, and again, you can just go back a few decades and you can look at things today, but where the deck is stacked against a certain set of people. And then you want to hold them accountable or look at them as uh, needing help. They shouldn't have been screwed over in the first place. And that lack of recognition. What concretely does that then mean dollars should do that are well-meaning and trying to fix the situation or even the playing field or what, I don't know, is the right way to say it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's about supporting uh, organizations and efforts that are really trying to tackle the root of these problems. And so, for instance, instead of a service mindset, right, or a helping mindset, it's a, you know, transformative, more radical, people think different things with that that word, approach. So, for instance, let's say uh, we're talking about affordable housing. Instead of the the story around a given policy being we need to create more affordable housing for certain folks. The story is we've redlined, we've we've done things that have pulled resources out of communities. We've done things that enable folks to be priced out of communities based on race and to have policy and programs that tell the right story and attempt to be corrective with respect to it. So I, I mean, I'm making this up as I'm going along a little bit here, but it could be the case that you're setting up housing that is subsidized at levels that we normally don't consider. We talk about that happening because of the context, as I described, because of the actual history. It's more like reparational housing. Yeah, exactly. I think <laughs> there's you know reparational housing, reparational internet access, reparational access to education. It's that mindset that does justice to the actual history. Where I think that runs into trouble in the electorate, in the American creed or something like that is people want in instances like this to have people treated as individuals. And obviously, individuals varied greatly in whether or not they were able to navigate the economic system since the 19th century. A lot of white people don't have any accumulated wealth, maybe the majority of them. Some African American people have a lot. So some people would argue that you can't do a group measure, even though, of course, we've had group measures that are on the evil side to repair this. How do you fit in this reparational need based on what slavery did to a group of people with that kind of ideology? Yep. There's educating the electorate. I think that's a big part of it. In the same way that I would want to see uh, those in philanthropy tackle reality, be educated themselves, tackle reality, reality accordingly. I think there's a need to educate the population in, in this country along those same lines so that the way some of this is perceived is, is very different, that it's actually seen as justice 
rather than either injustice or taking away something from folks. And like you said, there are, there are white folks who, who, are, who are screwed. Them feeling like this is an injustice on them or folks who are, let's say, wealthy feeling like, well, there are black folks who are doing quite well, so this approach is unfair. We should be seeing these folks as individuals because you have these folks who are achieving. Part of it, I think, is, is education. The other is, look, slavery, reconstruction, racist policies that still exist now, they don't see individuals, right? I mean, they they are operating according to people being perceived as a group. And there's always exceptions. It was very difficult to try to resolve the problem of, oh, there are folks who who don't need, let's say, uh, a level up. I mean, the, the, you know, what's true is, I mean, if you're, let's say, a, a black person whose net worth is, let's say, $5 million, if your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on hadn't been denied opportunity, maybe you'd be a billionaire, right? I could even argue, right, that those folks are, <laughs> are owed something. I mean, the distribution of billionaires should be race agnostic. Uh, just as the distribution of millionaires and the distribution of people in poverty, deep poverty. I see what you're saying. And I get that. It's complicated. To me, given the current way folks are educated and kind of what's in the water, what the kind of consensus is, there are things that make absolutely you know, great sense given history, but they don't make sense because folks don't understand the history and that reality. And so I would hope philanthropy would be on the leading edge of that. There is a kind of a wave of new teaching in the high schools, in the universities, which is producing quite a lot of people who understand what you're saying and agree with you. But there's quite a gulf between that sort of class of people, both of all races that are educated in that way and sort of average Americans who haven't learned that language. Right. And not only that, there are those who don't want, I mean, I think there are strong that don't want that education to it. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. You know, you can have, uh, let's say reparations specifically, you know, people have been talking about reparations for <laughs> as long as I've been alive. It was something that was considered fringe. It's crazy. Now you have Coates writing a piece, you have Democratic candidates. There are these moments where there's enough education, there's enough change in the context where something that seemed crazy is just, you know, less crazy. It seems more mainstream. It's a big deal. There's more power in the electorate because th that's a pivotal group in the Democratic primary. There's a huge amount of power in African-American voters in the Democratic Party right now. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a whole other thing. I mean, I would say yes and no. <laughs> I mean, by, by the numbers, it should be yes. What you also have, I, I would say, this is like, you know, miseducation of black folks. You, you have black folks who've come to, to embrace this idea that we have to be really careful, slow, incremental, because anything radical will, you know, kind of create a backlash and screw us. And I'd say the Democratic Party, understandably on some level, you know, for, for black voters, where are they going to go? I mean, a GOP that's increasingly acting against the interests of black communities, that's increasingly racist, you're either not going to vote or you're going to vote for a Democrat. And so I think and you see this play out, Democrats really disdain, I think, taking on issues that benefit black folks too much, right? This idea of, yeah, there's a certain power, but I think Democrats have taken black votes for granted, even when there's, you know, electoral consequences for doing so. You know, I remember when I first started working at MoveOn, I spent some time with Jesse Jackson and some black 
politicos who had been in that that world longer than I. And I got kind of like the, the rundown on things that folks had tried to do, right? Ways in which they had tried to move electeds to be more justice thinking in, in their policy work and how, you know, the doors basically slammed in their face. And so it's like, you know, half measures, quarter measures, uh, and folks feeling like, hey, we've, we've got to embrace that because we don't have an alternative. And again, this, I think, goes back to education of the population to a degree. Black folks and the Democratic Party have, it's been ingrained this dance of, uh, we're going to get crumbs, we're going to appreciate the crumbs, and what Democratic electeds, you know, I think habitually do is ensure, right, if, if they can at the maximum level not offend the white Midwestern potentially swing voter. Morality or justice to be damned, basically, right? So that, that unwillingness to actually address the, the circumstances of black folks, to me, translates into, well, black folks, we really don't have that power. We should, you would think, by the numbers. I love you know, seeing younger folks who, just not just with race, but with gender and, and, and a lot of stuff, are like, wait a minute, this is the injustice. Here's what it looks like, and here's what a remedy is. Um, I'm not trying to settle for anything less. And that's not the mentality, I would say, of black folks for very good reason. I think, you know, when black folks truly stand up and say, wait a minute, here's a problem, and it's on you, you know, folks in leadership to solve it, what happens is those in, in, in leadership, one, <laughs> aren't interested in that conversation. They see, you know, that middle of the road, let's say, white voter as they don't want to lose them. And the result is, screw you. And in some cases, that screw you is is violent. In the case of policing, it's, it can be violent. It is indeed risky. And it, it really reminds me of, you know, when we were just talking about Pelosi and the Democrats, the question is, are you willing to take certain risks in order to push for justice? And if you are, folks will follow you. You might actually get somewhere. But if you fail to even show up ready to fight, and face certain consequences, then you're really not going to get anything. I mean, what you might get is some incremental change. You might get crumbs. And of course, the problem is while you're getting the, the incremental gains and the crumbs, you've got things that are operating at a, a macro level, right? Uh, they're not incremental and they're, they're bigger swings and shifts um, that counter the gains that you're getting incrementally and slowly. Being willing to demand that which is just and right it's not easy. And to me, that's fine. <laughs> but if you're going to be in leadership, as we were talking about with respect to Trump, or if you're an organizer or a, a nonprofit involved in bettering conditions, whether it's for black folks or anyone else, if you're unwilling to push, you're basically part of that same regime that at the end of the day, screws us. I do see quite a number of people I think who agree with that line of argument and are pushing very hard, maybe fewer of them in the elected position, but many of them in the activist position. And that does, I think, result in pressure that maybe hopefully creates better results. Starting Color of Change, doing things like this, you spend a lot of time putting your money where your mouth is on this. What, what are you up to lately? Yeah. Can I say one more thing, though, about what you just we were just talking about this idea yeah. of you know electeds perhaps not pushing hard but uh, yeah. you know nonprofit 
advocacy groups, let's say, doing so. I, I would say I, I don't think that's that, that's not my 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 read on it. And and frankly, this is part of the reason why or a big motivator for creating color of change. NAACP been around for a long time, done some great stuff for sure. Um, but I would say the NAACP, like many other organizations, um, and this isn't obviously you know not restricted to to the landscape of kind of black uh, folks. You see, see the same thing with LGBTQ issues, where they are used to being in the room with Beltway folks, powerful folks. There's a desire to not fall out of favor. Like the NAACP, for all the injustices, you know, in my 50 years, there have been moments where the NAACP is truly aggressive and willing to upset a lot of folks in the name of achieving justice. When Katrina happened, you know, part of, you know, Van and I, what we were, what we saw was, here's an example, kind of a perfect example of the way in which folks in leadership, state level, federal leadership are not afraid of ignoring the problems that black folks have as a result of policy. They're not worried about the NAACP or anybody knocking someone out of office, damaging someone's reputation when it should be damaged. And so color of change in many ways was we, we wanted to, to change that dynamic. And and I can't tell you how many times there were moments when I was, you know, at color of change where we were pushing very hard and the folks who tried to throttle us were, I would say, kind of civility oriented or, you know, black folks who were like, hey, 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 wait a minute, you're going a little too far. <laughs> and you have, you know, black folks who I, I would say have like to their core bought into this idea of incrementalism. They don't want to be, you know, if we're like, hey, we're doing this thing, uh, would you join us? It's like, because mm, they're afraid of a certain consequence for them. Because in fact, they have a certain level of comfort in the status quo and they don't want to damage it. So in any space, whether it's, you know, I'm thinking of the LGBT space uh, in particular, but you've got groups who are throwing down in a way that makes some folks uncomfortable. It's not incremental. And, and then you have those who are far more middle of the road, see themselves, yes, as, you know, kind of, you know, activists for the, for the gay community and, and trying to improve things. But they also are, on the other hand, they're very close to and see themselves as a part of the, the group, right, that doesn't want to move too fast. And, and that's a problem. And, and, I, and so anyway, I, I would just say, I think it infects, uh, you know, the advocacy community as well. I think that every movement that I am acquainted with has a spectrum of leadership from conservative to radical. And that the ones in general that get a lot of the change that they want are able to sort of make use of all of that spectrum. Mm -hmm. You know, think about climate change, something that's not maybe as deeply charged politically going back through our country's history. Right now, you have people who are pushing for direct action. You have people who are just working on how do we change? How do we adapt? There are people who are in environmental organizations that are very much part of the establishment that are working hard to change laws. There's a whole spectrum to get action. You probably need all of that. Yeah. And what I think is, I think you need all of it. The question is, uh, who's 
actually leading. And here's what I mean, going back to color of change in the NAACP. There were moments where we were taking the NAACP to task, in particular around you know, net neutrality comes to mind, where th- they were basically a big problem in, in carrying uh, the water of the big telcos and cable companies using arguments that were just plain false and that would actually be detrimental to the interests of black communities. At the same time, or at, at, at different moments, um, you know, I remember when we were, you know, going after, I think it was, you know, ABC or, or, or you know, Disney, I think owned ABC, it may have been around Breitbart when he was actually alive. Um, and, you know, the NAACP was kind of the, the good cop and we were the bad cop. And the NAACP had the same analysis as we did. They were not going to be as strident in how they engaged. And th- they were, again, like kind of the polite face in, in negotiating. And we got to the, the end goal. And it wouldn't have been possible, right, without them playing good cop and us playing bad cop. But we had essentially a shared strategy. Folks are going to want to talk to uh, Alicia Garza, some folks, Alicia Garza, let's say, you know, uh, for Black Lives Matter, and they could talk to somebody else. And that's fine as long as the, the Black Lives Matter folks and the folks who are less scary to folks in power, you know, that works beautifully. But I think what happens is you'll have the less radical, if you will, folks either forcing their analysis or dragging their feet or just straight up blocking the attempts of those who are more radical. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a both and here. I think, yeah, they can work together. But I also think, you know, when you have, let's say, black organizations, black folks in leadership afraid to r- truly confront those in power, we, we, we often have folks, you know, who you would think or hope um, would be on our side, ready to kind of throw down, who actually make it very difficult. This also connects to philanthropy because oftentimes, you know, if you look at, you brought up the climate climate change. We had climate groups, and you look at those who are trying to be a little too nuanced. They are often you look at who, who's funding them. You, you look at who they're re- held in high esteem by. You look at the degree to which, yeah, they get let's say corporate donations. Folks who actually understand the situation that we're in with respect to climate change, there really isn't much room. I mean, we may already be screwed, right? So it's like that becomes philanthropy, right, for instance, shouldn't be empowering those that are more, I hate to say centrist, but let's say centrist. Some people think politics is the art of the possible and you're going to have compromise and you're going to have to sometimes make deals with the devil. And that's kind of the reality of it. And there's the point to that. And there's other people who say, we can move the window. We can change the system so that the compromise is in a totally different place because of the we're wielding power that wasn't being wielded before. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, th- those who, who want to think of it as the art of the possible, Trump isn't, isn't, isn't operating like that. I think he is often. He tries to do something and he gets as far as the resistance to what he's doing is able to find votes. He says, I'm going to make a Muslim ban, and he puts one out there, and then the courts back it off a little bit, and he rewrites it, and he gets what's possible. And he's been doing that on all kinds of fronts, right? But that's not negotiating to get to the possible. In other words, 
that's, it's, that's it's just pushing as far as you can until you're, yes. until you, you can't, can't get any. Yeah, yeah, but what, what he's done, right? Whether it's you know family separation, Muslim ban, whatever the the issue is, he goes as far as he's over the top. He's certainly bold. In the case that we, we you just mentioned, the courts, which thus far are still you know somewhat independent, right? The Republicans under Trump aren't um, doing deals. Um, I mean, in some cases, I'm sure they are. But like on on a lot of the policy stuff that there's public conversation about, it's not deal making. It's kind of my way or the highway, and he goes and he doubles down on it, right? And it doesn't mean that he gets everything he wants. Per let's say the court's actually blocking him, but it's not like there's you know boldness on the Democratic side. So do you think there's something we should be learning from his style of governing? Yeah, I think it's, and it's not that we should be emulating it necessarily at all. Um, but yes, we should, we should be learning is that, you know, this idea, for instance, of the art of the possible makes sense when you have folks who are playing, you know, kind of, you know, by the same kinds of rules. When we're being a little accommodating, we're, we're willing to negotiate. And on the other side, you have folks who are bullies and bullying those who think that you know they're going to get somewhere by negotiating by kind of playing fair you know give up something to get something they lose <laughs> so i think you know, one is to realize you know it's a setup when we're playing by traditional rules of engagement and you've got an opponent who's like to hell with that and they win they win repeatedly they shift what seems acceptable the window of what's normal shifts as over time, they're able to bully and win. I take your point, and this, it's sort of something like you're playing someone who cheats. Mm-hmm. It's very—it's a very hard game to play. Yes, but whenever somebody like tried to bully him back, like in the campaign, like Marco Rubio, they were not. Uh, very successful in that it took them down more notches than it ever took him and many people that i've talked to who whose political acumen i respect have said things like you don't want to get into the bullying battle with this particular guy it's just not strategic to do that is that what you fundamentally disagree with yeah i think i disagree with it i mean part of the problem in in I'm, I'm, I don't. I don't recall exactly, like with Rubio, the specifics. But my, like, what I would say is, what I see, folks want to have a certain decorum, a certain civility, while still kind of hitting Trump. Right? He he comes out and he calls you as a, a fat idiot who you know beats your children, and your response is, well, no, I'm I'm actually smart. Um, you're the one who seems to be intellectually challenged, and. Come on, I don't beat my family. Okay. And he says, No, you absolutely do. And you're absolutely fat and you're absolutely an idiot. So what happens is he still looks strong. He's being kind of raw. I mean, people love to say, Oh, he's speaking his mind. He seems more authentic in a certain way than those who are pushing back. So what I would say is it's shocking to me, although I guess not so shocking. If you see him as a bully and you think of like schoolyard bullies, right? The, the way a schoolyard bully gets taken down. Usually it's because someone whoops that person's ass. One person can do it. Or, frankly, someone punches that person in the face one time, and that might be it. Because everyone thought everyone was afraid to punch the bully. So if you're responding with, to Trump in half measures, and you're not actually delivering 
a, a certain kind of blow. And it's risky. It's always risky. That, I think that's, that's the thing. If you're not stepping into kind of a position of risk, you are not going to beat the bully. Warren does it a bit. I've seen, you know, Warren to me has shown, uh, and I haven't watched all the debates and maybe there's some others doing it as well, but it took a long time for most politicians and for the media to say, oh, he's a racist. The guy's been a racist as, as long as I've known about him. Why can't you say that he's a racist? So when he comes, or, you know, and a misogynist, when he comes, uh, you know, showing himself to be these things and attacks people coming from that place, and you don't basically counter with something as forceful and as authentic and, you know, something people can feel and touch, and you're like, oh, this person's a badass, and they're actually right, and, you know, they got him on the ropes. Without that, you're not going to beat the guy. So who would you like to see in the three debates in 2020 across him on the stage? At this moment, the person that I'm, I'm most confident in is, is Elizabeth Warren. She's not perfect. None of them are perfect. Part of it is this, too. What Trump is really, really, really good at is you can talk about any centrist Democrat as basically not serving lower income Americans. And you can just, you know, or not being real, let's say, about criminal justice reform or anything. So these folks are vulnerable and he will attack them and they won't defend themselves very well. And so that that worries me about most of most of the candidates. Warren, I think, increasingly, once she's I think her record is better uh, and, and less subject to attack, as far as I know. And I, I think she's comfortable with a certain kind of confrontation. So she's got less, I think, that Trump could use against her. And I think she's not afraid of actually being in the ring with him. So right now it'd be Warren. Tell me what you're up to lately. I've got two kids. I just turned 50. I don't have the energy of a 20 year old. And I've got, you know, kids who need me in the morning and the evening. And then we've got, I've got another four kids um, and, and, a, and a mom who lives live with us from Honduras. So I've kind of got six kids. Family life, there's a lot. On the work front, you know, I'm still on you know the boards of of you know Move On, uh, Color of Change, and Southern Poverty Law Center, and they're all in different ways pretty consuming. Um, you know, given the, the state of America and and given the the growth of you know actually I think all of those organizations to some degree, a lot of time there. Springboard is is a, a company I started that takes most of my work time aside from the, the board stuff. What we try to do is identify gaps in the advocacy space. So, and it could be that this organization, let's say, you know, move on or the Sierra Club or whomever, you would think they would be tackling a given issue, but they're not. Is it bandwidth? Is it that unlike the organizations I just mentioned, are they a small organization that doesn't actually recognize an opportunity or doesn't have folks on board who can put together a strategy and tackle a given issue? So sometimes it's just like, you know, if there were a playbook for doing this, this organization would do it. Um, Or if this organization had money, they would do it. In other cases, it's like, uh, there's just no beat, if you will. There's no group that's, you know, already exists to meet a certain challenge. And so what we at Springboard try to do is, uh, you know, when we come across these kinds of gaps, we try to figure out if there's a path to, to filling those gaps. And it may be, partnering with an organization, making sure they can, you know, get the resources they need, give them, you know, a playbook to support them. Or it could be that we run a campaign, put someone else's name on it, or, you know, help start organizations. Um, And so one actually, which is is, is great to see come to fruition, there's an organization we uh, started called Majority Action, which basically marries 
um, shareholder activism done by larger institutional players um, with kind of everyday people activism that you'd see through, say, a color of change or a move on. We're aggressively going after public companies and fund managers that enable public companies to do harm to society. You had some groups that did corporate campaigning, let's say, but they don't operate at the same level and, and actually create consequences for, say, the Black Rocks or Vanguards who enable, like in climate specifically, big, big, big. I mean, there's regulate, lack of regulation, but then there's extreme enabling happening on the part of companies like BlackRock and Vanguard that let basically the fossil fuel industry wreak havoc. But actually, if you have a 401k or a mutual fund, you have a voice in setting or approving pay for executives, approving board members, uh, voting for or against shareholder resolutions. And most people don't know about that power that we have. And so anyway, in this case, we stood up a new organization. We're also doing stuff on uh, police unions. Uh, There are folks who do criminal justice reform, who uh, really are trying to change the way policing happens and create a level of police accountability. Um, But what hasn't been tackled like on a daily basis, it's not anyone's beat, is uh, defining police unions, helping people see how police unions through contracts through legislation in a bunch of different states, make it impossible structurally to hold police accountable. You know, when Laquan McDonald's killed and riddled with bullets, you know, the police union saying, well, wait, 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 wait. We, 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 we need to wait and see. We can't prejudge. And even after there's like, <laughs> you know, officers making up stories, a very well-crafted cover-up, they're still in denial and trying to like prevent any, any, any accountability for cops. Most folks don't understand the role of police unions. Um, and so we've got an initiative focused on that. So, you know, what Springboard is about, like I said, is, is filling these gaps in, in moments, but then also, you know, with longer term plays. Springboard. That's pretty interesting to me. How big is that? It's tiny. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, it's a small group. Um, I, mean, I realize I'm talking about it and people will hear about it. But for the most part, we're, it's not like an advocacy brand. Nothing out there is like a Springboard campaign. And so, you know, there are three of us who are partners. Um, and then we have a set of folks, contractors, who work, you know, when we cook up an initiative, you know, we bring folks in to execute. We got several different vendors and independent contractors who, you know, who carry out work. And sometimes it's, it's quick. Like I said, like with Majority Action, we basically created an organization and then, you know, merged with another organization. One of our partners now leads the organization that has a, an actual staff and so on that's ongoing. But yeah, it's very small. Do people come to you with ideas or are these sort of things that you're observing among your partners and then deciding to do? It's not like we're inviting folks to to pitch stuff. We're plugged in the different parts of the social justice you know, kind of movement space. You'll see people say, what, wait, so-and-so should do that or this should happen. So often it's it's just kind of drinking the water around us and things emerge as like gaps. And there are things where people have cooked something up, but they have a job and, you know, they're wanting someone to do a thing and they, you know, aren't in a position to do it. Um, in other cases, we're asking a, a set of questions about like, why isn't something happening? Uh, and then, you know, so it's kind of generated from, from, you know, within our own heads and it follows along. I mean, what I didn't talk about, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention is, you know, Basically, there's another part of Springboard, which is about incubating uh, startup companies. And it's a similar lens. You see a product out there or a service, it seems to not fulfill a, a given need. And so much like an entrepreneur, you end up with a thesis, you test the thesis, and then you, you, you build something to solve the problem. 
we were doing that same kind of set of middle exercises in the for-profit startup space. And in both cases, I mean, it really is about talent. If there are entrepreneurs or there are people who are already, you know, kind of in a given space and they're promising and they would be great to, to lead or work on an effort. What advice would you give to other entrepreneurs who are interested in the political space, the social justice space? You have people who think, oh, I've got this idea and I can kind of imagine what an organization or an effort, uh, you know, could look like. But there's maybe a good reason why that hasn't been done yet. Um, or I don't have the time or the money or the people around me to really, you know, make a go of something. And I think to a degree, an entrepreneur who's going to be successful is aggressively trying to figure out what the real barriers are. Um, you know, there's a certain degree of confidence. So if someone's like too, too steeped in the, uh, I don't know how I could possibly do it. I don't have the, the time and the money. It may be the case that they're, they're not going to be a you know, successful entrepreneur. I mean, but I would say those who aren't too steeped in that, talk to folks who have created things, right? So talk to other entrepreneurs. I mean, a lot of my time actually is spent with folks who are, they're trying to create something. They need some support. They need some advice. I, I spend a, a fair amount of time with it. And another thing, I, especially like, let's say in the racial justice space, what, what I've really appreciated is folks who are sometimes in their 20s or 30s, they've come up in, in a different world than I came up in, which, which means some of the things that I think are like, this is how it goes, right? <laughs> here's the, my analysis of the situation, and here's what you do in response. Some of that's outdated, right? And so to me, it's actually an imperative uh, for those who have, have built things to help pave the way for those who are going to build things, the ecosystem needs to develop over time. And those of us who are you know, aging are in, in, cer in certain ways less able to deliver what's needed. Providing that kind of support is, is, is really important. Well, I'm glad you're doing that. Um, is there a question I should have asked that I failed to? Oh, let's see. Um, well, there's answers I wish I had given <laughs> differently. Not really, but like, you know, America, I, I, I hope in my lifetime see some of serious fundamental change when it comes to this idea the individual and corporations enabled to do really whatever the the those who have power can kind of continually tweak our democracy to serve them versus others i hope we we can you know get there and on race i hope we can get someplace fundamentally different i mean i think climate change is is one of these things where if we don't get it right like yesterday maybe now we're screwed. It demonstrates whether it's the problems with philanthropy, the problems with advocacy organizations, democratic leadership. I mean, I, you know, I, I would never expect much from re Republican leadership, but I think, you know, the idea that the DNC doesn't want to have, didn't want to have a climate debate is just enraging to me. We have an existential threat and the science is clear. And, you know, you have folks afraid of talking in straight terms, uh, engaging corporate actors, around short-termism that basically is, is I, I think, you know, cementing you know, the likelihood of, of the, the place becoming inhabitable. And this has been great. I don't know uh, that there are questions you should have asked that you didn't. <laughs> it's been an honor to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? Thanks for the opportunity to talk about all this. It's important stuff, and I'm glad you're doing, doing what you're doing. That was James Rucker of Springboard. He's at Springboard 
ptrs.com Springboard Partners. I'm glad we have folks like James on our side of the fight. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.